This evening's talk is about kama, and beginning with some <clears throat> words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born to their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with more uh, with with a more deep deeper understanding of the teachings of Kama. And that is that this teaching the teaching about Kama offers and brings to an ever and ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of higher authority, but rather actually founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on Kama is not so much uh, something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and to know, uh, to know it in its operation, as it operates. And it turns out that Kama is really not some unreachable or strange concept. And as a Western woman, and I think that I can pretty safely say this for most of us uh, women and men who have been brought up and conditioned as Westerners uh, and here uh, now uh, uh, for others here that weren't totally brought up and conditioned as Westerners, but to some degree have been brought up and conditioned in the West, uh, that for me it's been kind of a relief uh, to discover this. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of Kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and even actually quite ordinary. And maybe even so ordinary that it sometimes uh, may elude our very complicated minds. So what is it? What is Kama? Etymologically, um, or the root of the word Kama is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of saying this is action based on motivation, which is the Tibetan way of saying it, using the word motivation uh, often rather than the word intention. And in English, the word motivation actually has uh, a deeper and subtler meaning than the word intention. 
So, for, meaning really the motivation behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. And in the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, we could say, which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is really the essence of kama, and from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional actions that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intentions lead one to choose to uh, act or speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome kama. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So an ordinary example, just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall, just as it always bounces back if it's thrown against a wall. Skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and actions generate inevitable consequences. The law of karma is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of karma, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life is clarified. The Dalai Lama once said, it's more important to understand karma than emptiness. Something that I've discovered um, by way of my own uh, practice, and I've discovered it to be, it was uh, quite amazing and illuminating, uh, quite an amazing and illuminating discovery, is that in the context of the teachings and 
in our practice of the Dhamma. Intention has a much deeper meaning than it commonly has in the way it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between the internal thought and the resultant external actions, such as, I did that intentionally, or is that really what you meant to say? The Buddha's teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the responses of the heart, to the various sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly or sometimes not so subtly volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and then reaps the karmic or comic fruit of these choices. Intention is the factor that which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away to turn towards or turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, leads the heart to proceed or to not proceed in any particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, how the heart responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation of intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation of intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. So basically this is the teaching of cause and effect or cause and result. Inherent in each intention or each motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle is, the, is an energy that is powerful enough to bring about a subsequent result. And it's actually possible to experience this process occurring with mindfulness accompanied by a very deep and strong concentration.
So in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that may not even be particularly important, be a particularly important thought, isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of karma that's added to the stream of conditions that shape one's mental activity. And if this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over again in the mind, or expressed repeatedly through external expression in uh, speech or in actions, the result, the comic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical features and various expressions, as well as in the form of verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and the reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up again and again in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware and repeatedly acting or practicing these specks of mental karma that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that goes something like this. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. A a Theravada way of saying it could be everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive intention, kama, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. Effective. I remember once uh, getting a note uh, uh, that wasn't very pleasing to me when I was uh, sitting a retreat many years ago. And I proceeded to uh, angrily tear this piece of paper up that the note was written on. And even though the piece of paper itself, I mean, had absolutely no importance, the action certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this, more recently, I was cleaning off my desk. And with a neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away some scraps of paper. The action then producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, angry motivation, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the wheel of dependent origination or what's sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. In light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Tibetan, uh, excuse me, the Thai Buddhist scholar, uh, Venerable Venerable Peyuto. 
And these are his words. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, the specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of much smaller quality, may, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it is necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called The Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offered in a talk that I gave towards the beginning of this retreat, where the various woodland uh, dwelling devas approached uh, and spoke to certain monks who were practicing in these same woodland thickets. And so I'd like to again uh, share just a small part of one of these same short dialogues as an illustration uh, of what we're exploring uh, right now. And this is the Thief of Scent from the Samyutta Nikaya. I'm just going to read a portion of it. I'm sure you remember it. <laughs> so the Deva speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, uh, uh, let's see, just as a little prelude uh, to a reminder for you, this is the verse uh, about a bhikkhu or a monk who, after returning from his daily alms rounds and then eating his meal uh, in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would then go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And the deva who... uh, lived in that same woodland thicket. When she saw this, she thought, uh, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and then entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. And she went on thinking that if his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. So she continued thinking, let me draw near and uh, reproach him. 
So, out of compassion for this bhikkhu and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for right practice, uh, she spoke to the monk and addressed him as follows. In the Deva speaking, When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds to the Deva, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, of, of such, one, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mare's mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and right now in this lifetime, and on, back, and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we really are the undeniable heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say that with everything that happens and the the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, our wholesome responses and unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena, our own mind. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is due to the motivations, intentions, and subsequent actions. The deeds of the mind, body, and speech. Not due to our wishes, 
not due to our hopes or our dreams for ourselves. And certainly not due to anybody else, some other person, or some outer or hostile-seeming or antagonistic-seeming or uh, outer occurrence or outer person or some seeming mysterious or strange world out there. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body and mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind, more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding knowing that we in fact are the owners or the heirs of our karma and that in this knowing we can and do actually actively create and fashion our life and that the more we clearly know our motivations know our intentions the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict, we're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? the heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel or the comic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint or 
clay or marble or music or pencil and paper as our creative medium. It's our very mind, body, and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners, that we, in fact, are the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing, we can and actively do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama uh, to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental karma being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, are conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding. And with our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which is what direct our motivations, our intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words or flow out into actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, the understanding of ourself, other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, and places as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding. We're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance, which in the Buddhist teachings is called wrong view. Ignorance meaning ignoring the truth of things. With this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our intentions, our motivations, are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, experiences and places are all totally interdependent and arise only 
because of the because of various causes and conditions coming together and that in fact the causes and the conditions themselves are always also in flux that nothing no thing abides independently or separately or is static then our intentions our motivations come out of understanding the truth of the way of things our intentions and our motivations come out of what is called right view and so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and what i like to call a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others and i'd like to read some of the buddha's words from the anguttara nikaya regarding this monks yogis when there is wrong view bodily karma created as a result of that view verbal karma created as a result of that view and mental karma created as a result of that view as well as intentions aspirations wishes and mental proliferations all are productive of results that are undesirable unpleasant disagreeable yielding to no benefit but conducive to suffering on what account on account of that pernicious view it's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth the soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste an acrid taste a foul taste why is that because the seed is not good yogis monks when there is right view bodily karma created as a result of that view verbal karma created as a result of that view mental karma created as a result of that view as well as intentions aspirations wishes and mental pl- proliferations all are all yielding of results that are desirable pleasant agreeable producing benefit and conducive to happiness on what account on account of those good views it is like a seed of the sugarcane a seed of wheat or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth the water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness into refreshment into delicious taste on what account on what account is that on account of that good seed An important aspect of right view is that what we call self which is very often um a reference to this body as self is actually a process made up of many many elements with all in each of them being in continual flux 
So the four great elements, the water element, earth element, water element, fire element, and wind or air element. And the experiential characteristics that make up or that we actually experience, that we come to know directly through our practice. So this body as hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, flowing, cohesion, heat, coolness, supporting, pushing. These characteristics of the elements that make up what we often identify as my body. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within this essentially impersonal process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, and some seeds are dormant for many, many years, maybe many lifetimes, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them, we could say. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed, as the Buddha spoke about in the quote I just read from him. And the metaphor that's often used in explaining this is that apple seeds bring apples, and I like to say lettuce seeds bring lettuce (laughs) into this world. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit, and an angry or hateful act produces hateful or angry fruit. Not self, or what we could call impersonality behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very uh, powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness with a very mindful and very respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their comic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And this is a a short uh, 
teaching from Padmasambhava, who's said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. He said, Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act and awareness of the comic or karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed has the effect of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and to transform the mind, to transform the heart, and to transform our actions. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, that it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of, the, of approaching the world with anger, with aggression, with greed, with grasping. An important point, and I feel a very important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not really so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning what's really important, maybe what's most important, is how you approach the situation in this moment. So for instance, the appropriate, healthy, and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent, it's a great long list, where all of this can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds, through our wholesome deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, wholesome thoughts and words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there comes to really be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, in this very lifetime right now. Maybe even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And of course, our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very good deed, the very best deed, really. And the essential ground 
for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me, and I think I mentioned it in the talk on equanimity, is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this, and it becomes established in us, and it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples that I think I also said during the uh, equanimity talk, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties that come up in our practice and that come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the results of our deeds bring us maybe some sorrow or some discomfort or some pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life, or maybe through some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we have been expecting not what we had in mind. Results that may be contrary to what we might think our intention, what we might think our motivation was. Many years ago now, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times in our work together, this isn't what I had in mind. which would always uh, kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a much closer look at my motivations and my intentions, my expectations. And most importantly in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring in that very moment with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense we could say it becomes our friend. And maybe it sometimes feels like a quite a stern and in a certain way uh, quite a demanding teacher. 
yet potentially a very truthful and well-intentioned friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions, the mental, verbal, and physical actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to share a a portion uh, from a book uh, called And There Was Light in relationship to our discussion this evening by a man named Jacques Lucieran. Jacques Lucieran was uh, uh, in the French uh, resistance movement during the Second World War and uh, wrote this book. I'm reading just a section, a few sections from it. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not as all not at all as I had imagined it. Nor was it uh, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time, I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack of something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. This happened when he was uh, a boy. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake that people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight, toward the world outside. Immediately the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have them, I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it as, and seeing it though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside inside me my secret, 
and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny it that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel it I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, and then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, but that seems and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived, lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it, and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If, instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles, the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion, the minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned, turned turtle, and muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly. As soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes, and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once, a black hole opened, and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence, and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. 
He has to learn it. For every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he is rewarded, for everything comes his way. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner. Mind as master are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, Therefore one should reflect repeatedly on one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And the Buddha says, It is by mental defilement that beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.